Now, it's not Roger Day tonight. Roger Day and the Day family all have a sick bug. Um, so as of three o'clock this afternoon, it was me. So do bear with me and cut me uh, a little more slack uh, than uh, normal. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Our Father, we pray that you would help us tonight, help me not to clutter up this passage of Scripture. We pray that you will speak clearly to us from your word and that we will listen and apply it. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if you grab uh, the handout, you'll see on the back, um, and we will uh, stick uh, relatively closely to that uh, outline. I used to know a man called uh, Willie Young. Willie uh, had been a Christian all of his life. And uh, when he came close to the end of his life, he gave me um, a gold watch. Uh, and I am to give that gold watch to our second child on his 18th birthday. And it's a very precious gold watch. It's made by uh, Omega, which is a, apparently a very um, good quality watch. And on his 18th birthday, I will give him that gold watch. And it's the kind of watch that maybe will outlast his generation, and he will give it to his son sometime down uh, the track. And the book of 2 Timothy is a book about being given something that is extraordinarily precious as a generation, being given the gospel and being charged to pass that gospel on to the next generation. Now, that is a very particular job of Christian ministers, and this Bible book is written to Timothy as a minister of a church at Ephesus, but it's a job for every single Christian in every generation to play their part in passing the gospel on. Now, let me just uh, take you back into 2 Timothy. You'll find it on page 995 in the church Bibles. And Timothy is Paul's trusted ally all through Paul's life. Timothy was the man that Paul sent to Corinth. We're doing Corinthians in the morning, that difficult, complex church. Timothy was the man Paul sent. Timothy said to the Philippian Christians, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. Timothy authored many of Paul's letters with him. And if there was one church that was close to Timothy, to Paul's heart, it was the church in Ephesus. And that's the church that Timothy is minister of and that's the church that Paul writes to in 1 Timothy, that's to the church, and in 2 Timothy to its leader, Timothy. But Timothy is normal and vulnerable. And the pressure's on him as a church leader in his generation to take that precious thing, the gospel, and to pass it on faithfully to the next generation could not be taken for granted. Timothy was surrounded on all sides by churches saying this, that, and the other. And his mentor, Paul, was in prison. And people were saying to Timothy, look, Paul's in prison. That's just, it's too extreme, that version of Christianity. Opt for something easier. Opt for something that is less hard and less demanding. And all around him, people's ears were itching to hear that kind of message. And Timothy was struggling 
How do we know? Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Verse 6, rather, for this reason, his heritage. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The flame, that's uh, Timothy's ministry gifts for leadership. The flame is obviously flickering. It's not gone out, but it's flickering. Fan it into flame. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prison. Fan into flame. Do not be ashamed. Second half of verse 8, share in suffering. The implication is that Timothy, the flame is not burning brightly, that he is ashamed and that he is not suffering for the sake of the gospel. Just look at the very bottom of the page, verse 15 of chapter 1. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And Paul is almost certainly naming names that Timothy was all too familiar with. Phygelus and Hermogenes, these people, Timothy, have deserted me. Paul is in prison. His colleagues have deserted him. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant mercy to him. Timothy, Phygelus and Hermogenes, you know these folks, Timothy, they have gone, they have deserted me. Thank God for Onesiphorus. You know Onesiphorus, Timothy. How do we know? Verse 18, the service he rendered at Ephesus. He's with you in the church they walked away, Timothy. He stood firm. And the question that's crying out from the text, what about you? What about you, Timothy? Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read down to 13. You then, my child. Or what about you, Timothy? Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. And I think Paul puts that in to just say to us, come on, don't fall into the trap of writing this off as unusual or extreme ministry for just a few. This is normal Christian leadership. This is normal Christian discipleship. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, but if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains uh, faithful. Now, the bit that I know best... Um, you don't often hear that in a sermon. The bit that I know best is verses 1 to 7. That's what I'm going to focus most of our time on and we'll pick up 
verses 8 to 13 in summary at the end and possibly more so next um, week. Now, let's concentrate first on verse 2. Verse 1 is, is a kind of backdrop that runs all the way through these verses. Every time uh, Julia made a promise, you want to put the words, depending on the grace of God, or because Jesus died, or because the Holy Spirit lives in her, she is able to make these promises. Every single verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, from verse 2 onwards, you need to have this verse ringing in your ears. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. You cannot do these things were it not for the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now the command in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Paul is talking here about the, the, the special deposit, the treasure of the gospel, the gospel given to us as a generation Keep it clear and pass it on. Entrust it to reliable men who will be able to teach others. You see the legacy of the gospel. Now, who are these others? Well, notice the two qualifications for these others or trainees or future leaders. They must be faithful and they must be able to teach. Now, why these two things, faithfulness and ability to teach? Well, because remember, the aim is to have the gospel guarded. The precious message must not be changed or tampered with or distorted or added to or taken away from, nor hidden away and buried, nor hidden away and buried even in the strongest churches if all the windows are shut to the world, but held faithfully and proclaimed boldly. That gospel needs to be taught to people who can and are willing to teach others. Now, the focus here is particularly on training men who will lead churches. Now, why do I say that? You can see if you've got a Bible with footnotes that the word can mean men or uh, people, uh, depending on the context. So is it... Uh, Train reliable men. I think that is right. The translation is right. But the word can be used for, for people, men and women. And I think that it is men because in the context here, Paul is focusing primarily on church leaders and elders, those who will have the responsibility for teaching the mixed congregation of men and women. And that's made really clear in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, the elders or church leaders are to be men. Now, that is not to say that only men teach or spread the gospel. Of course, it's not saying that. Remember, Timothy chapter 1, the first few verses, learned the gospel from his mom and his gran. That's front and center in the opening words of 2 Timothy, the letter, your mother and your grandmother. Just as there are many gifted and able women in this church family who are regularly teaching the Bible in various contexts. But for the mixed gatherings, like the situation we are in now tonight, it is the church leaders who teach the whole congregation together. And Timothy needs to train faithful men to do that. Why does he need to do it right now? Why does he need to do it? Because there are multiple leaders who once were faithful, 
like all those in Asia, and Phygelus and Hymenaeus, who are not anymore. So for the sake of now, for the sake of the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, train up other men to lead churches. Now, is it talking about training leaders for the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is, or further afield? Well, I think probably it encompasses the training of Bible teaching leaders for inside Timothy's local church, which is Ephesus, and outside the church in the broader area, and also future Bible teachers for the next generation. So train leaders for the church you are in now, train leaders for other churches in your generation now, and train leaders for the next again generation. So start young. Let's take the last two first. Train people for beyond this single local church and beyond this generation. So training people for sending out from a church and for the next generation. Now, why is that important? Well, simply because the precious, precious gospel and the word of God needs to be guarded and spread across the globe and from one generation to the next. Just think of it logically. If you take a generation out in any context in the world, one generation that loses the gospel, how many generations does that impact? Or one generation of missionaries sent out from the West to the two-thirds world without a gospel, how many generations does that miss and lose? The precious gospel needs to be guarded and spread across the globe and through the generations. Now, it was always Paul's ambition to spread the gospel far and wide and to keep training people that he would then send out and they would then send out others. That was his model. Paul longs to see good leaders in Ephesus, but he longs for Ephesus and other churches to send out leaders for the gospel who will guard it and spread it, and pass it on to another generation elsewhere. And so he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Multiplying ministry, both geographically and generationally. Now, if that hadn't happened one generation ago, or two generations ago in Scotland, we wouldn't have gospel churches. Now, if you are not involved in church leadership, as many of you are not, and listening to this point, wondering if you can switch off and snooze, you're not going to do that tonight because you're cutting me more slack than usual. This is directly relevant to us all. If this letter was not heeded, and if people in churches were not holding their leaders and their preachers accountable to teaching from the Bible, and if that happened in one generation, the consequences are significant. If everyone in Asia deserted Paul, maybe in the last analysis it was down to Timothy not also to desert him for the sake of the gospel in future generations. That's how much it matters. 
which is one of the reasons Chalmers as a church is so committed to training and sending people out to the harvest fields of Scotland and further afield. Why? Because millions of people are dying across this nation and this world with no hope of everlasting life. So churches, normal local churches, need to train up and send out people into this country and into countries far and wide across the globe. And if our ministers and training and our ministry associates and our global and our national mission partners and all the faithful congregation members who leave here and go and support gospel endeavors and church plants, and sometimes I feel like it's a revolving door out as well as in, what happens if we didn't do that? I'm not in any way, and it's easier for me to preach on this than Roger perhaps tonight because he's the one doing the training. I can talk about what he is doing more easily than he can. Why is it a good thing to do? Because millions of people are dying without any church in their local community to tell them the truth. The great commission of the Lord Jesus to take the gospel to the nations of the earth is not done. Millions of people on the planet are dying. Which is why churches that can perhaps in cities, train and send out people into the harvest fields of the world. And that's why in Chalmers we put a lot of resources into training people to send them out rather than keeping them to ourselves. It's worth it for the gospel. When Sam was ordained, Andy Robertson, who was Sam's equivalent until three years ago when he left, we had a little kind of um, ministerial huddle, that's what they are upstairs. Yet rugby teams have them, football teams, we have them as ministers. And I said, wouldn't it be nice that these two guys, and let's get Johnny in the mix as well, that all four of us stayed in the same church and we were a great staff team. Fantastic. All my friends. One of the wisest things the elders ever did here was said to me when I said, I want to keep Andy with me. They said, you need somebody like Roger to come, who's got lots of experience, who can really invest in training law, let Andy go and lead a church somewhere else. So what's better to have? Andy and me and Roger and Johnny and Sam? All in one church? Or in four churches? Sending people out into the harvest fields? Now, that's one dimension of what this means. And here's what I can't say that Roger can't say. That's why we have brought Roger here. The elder set me a really tough task. Go and find somebody to bring to this church committed to training who has experience of being in a training church somewhere in the UK. And there were about three people. That's four. Three people And we managed to persuade Roger to come. And Monday to Saturday, you don't see what goes on. He and me a bit invest in these people training in the early stages for the next generation of gospel ministry. Now, maybe you are sitting listening to this tonight 
and for the second time or third time or the first time, a little thought has entered your head or in your heart, might I be one of these people that goes out from this church into ministry in Scotland or into mission across the world? Almost certainly, because of the great needs in the world, in this group of 150 people, many of whom are young adults, there will be people. Who are these people? Well, let me encourage you, if that's you, to talk to us and talk to your small group leaders. And their answer might be to wait. Their answer might be to train. It will be. Their answer might be to take your time. But let them encourage you. Let them help you. And let them pray for you. Now, it's not just about training leaders to send them out. It's also about training people inside the church. Who would these people be inside a church? Well, fundamentally, the other elders alongside Timothy. And in this letter, it's clear that all the elders are not doing what they should be doing. There are elders not teaching the truth in Ephesus. And Paul is saying to Timothy, train up men and send them out as leaders, but train up people inside the church. And he's also speaking about those teaching in, in, in small groups, I guess. In our context, a church of the size of Chalmers would include finding and training faithful small group leaders who are able to teach, sharing in some of the teaching and pastoring that the elders have overall responsibility to. One of the great weaknesses of the church in the 20th century would be what people call restricting the Bible teaching to the pulpit. A church needs to release the word out through the church and equip lots of leaders in a church like a spider's web to teach the Bible all over that church. That's what this means, as well as sending out leaders. Find faithful people to teach this gospel. Men and women inside churches like Chalmers. Find faithful men to be leaders of churches, elders. And find faithful men to equip and to send out into this country as church leaders. Now, that's, that was Roger's point one in the sheet. Now, the reason that his point one is my point one is because we both preach from the Bible. That's really important. Now, let's turn to the second point. You've got to find people who will stay faithful to the gospel, and therefore, these leaders and uh, people training must be willing to endure the cost. Now, there's no wriggle room here. There's no way to soft coat this or put sugar on it. Whenever you speak about Christian leadership, certainly from a letter like 2 Timothy, I often feel it's not an attractive proposition. But then you think, well, truth is attractive and truth is real and truth is powerful. Whether Timothy or those he trains up as elders and leaders inside the church in Ephesus, or those he trains and sends out as missionaries or leaders of other churches, there must be a willingness to endure the cost. After all, the evidence is that all around Timothy and Paul, there are people in their generation. And it is true that all around, faithful gospel ministry in this country and in this generation, and in parts of the world, mission harvest fields of the world, 
Don't think that people who go overseas are always clear on the gospel. Some of the toughest places in the world are like Scotland and people are drifting sideways, left and right, away from the truth of the gospel in their generation. Why are they doing that? Because it's hard. In some parts of the world, they face real opposition, persecution. In our part of the world, it's ridicule. Orthodox, the synonym now for orthodox is fundamentalist. Traditional Christianity is seen as way out right wing. It's just orthodox. It's just our culture has changed. Holding to the Bible behind a lectern now is hard. Holding to the Bible as a small group leader is not easy. And it may well get harder. And so Paul says you need people who are willing to endure the cost. And uh, let me say to you as a minister who has been a minister for a long time, the temptation to shift and to change the message is very real. Now, we are protected here by others. We are protected by elders. I'm protected by all of you to be faithful. Now, Paul, um, Paul says this a number of times in the letter. He says here, verse 3, share in suffering as a good uh, soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a few military folks in the church uh, here tonight, and if you chat uh, to them, it becomes very clear that if you are, are, are actively involved in a conflict situation, there is suffering involved. There is. That's what you sign up to if you are a soldier. It's not that you want it. That's stupid. It's not that you want it as a Christian leader, but if it comes, you must endure it. And keep going with the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual strain. It's really a sad thing in the public conscience that the role of a minister or a vicar. So if you think, well, what's a parody you have a minister? It's, it's somebody who is not like a soldier or an athlete or a farmer. More like a kind of, I don't know what, a little bit wet, a little bit limp. Tea and scones at the vicarage, that kind of thing. What does Paul say? Soldiers, athletes, farmers. Soldiers, fighters, athletes, runners, farmers, workers. Soldiers who fight for a future victory. Athletes who train for a future prize. Farmers who fight for a future harvest. Soldiers who might not live to see the victory. Athletes who train and not get the prize because they're injured along the way. Farmers who work hard and don't see the full share of the harvest. Now, as Roger and I are involved in training the ministry associates here and the ministers in training, we mustn't get so wrapped up in good theology, how to read the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to get the perfect hook in your sermon, how to get three and a half illustrations, how to apply it, how not to preach too long like the minister. We should be saying to them, 
Are you willing to share in suffering? Are you willing to share in suffering? I remember up at a conference called Words of Life, I had a walk last year with a student from another university and uh, we walked all the way along the beach towards Carnoustie, the golf club, and we came back and I said to him, are you willing to suffer as a Christian? We're talking about ministry. And he answered, I'll, I'll not forget his answer. It wasn't no and it wasn't yes. He said, I just don't know, but I know I need to. I don't know. Share in suffering. We need to be willing to suffer. Now, the three illustrations, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, are great, great illustrations. But just in case you think that the Christian leader needs to be as tough as nails, like an athlete that's so single-minded... They don't give anyone any time for anything else. Or like a farmer whose hands are wind-beaten and bruised. Just turn to the end of chapter 2. You've got this picture of the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the one who endures hardship. And then Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful passions. That's not passions of the flesh like lust. It's a hot-headedness. Argumentative characters. Contrary characters and pursue righteousness. Faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the fighter, the trainer, the grafter, must be not quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you want a soldier and a gentle servant. And who's that like? Who do you know who is a king and a warrior king? Psalm 2, the Lord Jesus. And who is a servant, Isaiah 42. The Lord Jesus guarded the gospel with compassion and grace. The Apostle Paul is as tough as nails and as gentle and as loving as a father to a child, a mother to a child. And Timothy, in his life, has been as tough as nails and as gentle and as loving as his father in the faith. And Timothy now is struggling, struggling, struggling to hold on to what he should be doing. Now, there are great pictures in Roger's notes there. You see the, the logic. A soldier is to be single-minded, not distracted. The text says he mustn't get caught up in civilian affairs. Now, what does that mean for a minister? If you go forward to the big charge in the letter, chapter 4, verse 1, it all works up to that. 
Robin, Roger, Sam, Johnny, preach the word. That's what it says. Don't get caught up with this, that, and the other. Preach the word. Preach the word. The athlete needs to be disciplined. There are no shortcuts. Or don't cheat. Don't break the rules. And the farmer, hardworking and not lazy. Now, all of this is worth it when you remember the Lord Jesus, the risen King. Let's just read a few of these verses as we close. Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in the gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may be able to obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with everlasting glory. And the point is there, why the focus on the risen Jesus? What comes before the resurrection of Jesus? The suffering of Jesus. Suffering leads to glory. The soldier's suffering leads to future peace. The athlete's suffering leads to the crown. The farmer's hard work leads to the harvest. Paul's life, now leads him to say, chapter 4, verse 6, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now there is in store for me the crown, the Christian leader, the elder, the small group leader. We suffer now for future glory. Future glory. One of the very practical examples of that, you endure hardship. Think of the stuff we're doing in 1 Corinthians. You set aside your freedoms for the sake of another a new Christian, say, or an unbeliever. And because of that, they come to faith. But you don't know they've come to faith because they've moved away. And you'll meet them in glory when the harvest is taken in because you bore that cost for them. Or as a Christian leader, if you didn't abandon the gospel, Sam, if you don't abandon the gospel and you're 20, 30 years in Redeemer, whatever, and you pass it on, and there is a church after you because you didn't abandon the gospel. And people in that church after you are trained and sent out. That's what this is about. Each of us playing our part in our generation. Because Jesus did it. He suffered. And he rose from the dead. And Paul's own chains, you'll see there in the text, verse 8. I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Paul's feet are in shackles, but the gospel is free. Now, there's a big principle for the real Christian church in the world. When the church suffers, the gospel is unbound. And if in Scotland we increasingly go into a time of difficulty as we are entering, what will happen is the church will be clarified and purified and refined and the suffering church will yield fruitful gospel progress. And then this tough saying to finish, the saying is trustworthy, for if we died with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The first half of this is positive, the second half, less so. If we die to self, 
we will live with him in eternity. If we endure to the end like Paul, we will reign with him. Now, I think verse 12b and verse 13 are for Christian leaders. I think that's the tenor of this text. If, as a Christian leader, we deny Jesus, he will deny us on judgment day. I think it's a straight, straight challenge to the Christian leader because they will be judged more harshly. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I don't think that means that God will make things come right in the end. I think what it means is that he will remain faithful to his promise to deny us. So you see why it matters in a church like Chalmers that we find the right people to train and to send out into the harvest fields, that we find the right elders. Now, I suspect that was a cluttered mess tonight, but it is something like what Paul says in this bit of 2 Timothy. Let me finish by saying this. Who knows that tonight in this cluttered mess, somebody here might have heard in their heart, something of what people might call a call to Christian work or Christian service some way down the track. When I was a youngster, I would have sensed that one day I would be a gospel minister, but 20 more years of work and study followed till I grew up and learned life. But I never, ever changed in that desire and instinct. And if that is you tonight, then tuck that away, talk to somebody, pray with them, speak with them. Let me encourage you too to pray when he's not here for Roger, who is extraordinarily gifted and able and investing in the next generation of Christian leaders. Let me encourage you that the elders of the church here said, we want to bring in somebody to do that. Let me encourage you to pray for people like Robert here from the Faith Mission others involved in Christian education, training up a generation of Christian leaders for now and the generation to follow them and to train leaders who themselves will multiply leaders. Let's thank God that Redeemer starts in two months from day one as a training church with Ian going with Sam to Redeemer. Let's pray that they will be faithful. And please don't evade the challenge yourself. Hold us accountable. And in your small group, you have enormous responsibility and privilege as the people who are teaching the Bible to a small number of Do it well. Do it faithfully. Guard the gospel. Pass it on. Teach truth and enable others to follow. And pray that in something of this mix, in Scotland at least, that God will send his Holy Spirit and breathe fire into the dead bones in the church. And what will precede that, almost certainly, is the raising up of another generation of leaders to lead the churches that God sends the people to. So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for these strong and tough words from 2 Timothy about the next generation of leaders. We pray, Lord, that the likes of Timothy and our generation who are cracking under the pressure would rise to the challenge and be strong leaders for their generation. 
We pray that across Scotland, you would call people back who are being seduced and lured into an easier gospel message. Be gracious to them. Keep us, Lord, as leaders here from drifting. And may it be tonight, Lord, that you have sown a seed in somebody's heart to call them into Christian leadership, into Christian mission, to go out to the harvest fields of Scotland or the harvest fields of the United Kingdom or the harvest fields of China or other countries far, far away because they want to be part of passing on the gospel to the next generation clearly. Help us, Lord, to heed you call in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.